Did you spend more time than usual making or crafting this past year? Did you take up knitting or finally finish that cool crochet project that you'd somehow abandoned years ago? Were you frustrated by the long wait for oil paints and brushes as art supply stores struggle to keep up with the sudden massive demand? If so, you're not alone. Media coverage from the past several months suggests that participation in crafting, making, art, and various other forms of hands-on doing exploded during the pandemic. From building COVID gardens, to starting DIY home improvement projects, from refocusing time and energy on our existing talents and hobbies, to taking online courses and learning new skills. For some, this was driven by the sudden need to keep ourselves and our little loved ones occupied during the shutdowns. For others, the abnormal and devastating circumstances had the unexpected side effect of opening up or freeing big chunks of time and attention, giving us the breathing room as well as the impetus to tinker, get our hands dirty, and create. Of course, not everyone had the luxury of doing arts and crafts during this period, and many of us were instead preoccupied with surviving, grieving, or combating the virus itself. The barrage of Instagram posts featuring recently completed sewing projects and tweets about sourdough starters were also evidence of the stark divides and profound inequalities found in our pandemic experiences, both here in the West and globally. But creating and making are more than just leisurely pastimes. Scientists, philosophers, and other scholars from a range of disciplines have shown that engaging in hands-on creative activities has a myriad of benefits for our sense of self, our sense of community, our mental and emotional health, and our overall well-being. Creating can provide stress relief, a way to connect with others, it can support learning new materials, and help us to process our feelings and memories, to name just a few. The research in this area reveals that the importance and value of engaging in creative activities should not be underestimated, even in times of crisis, perhaps especially in times of crisis. Professor David Gauntlet is the Canada Research Chair in Creativity in the School of Creative Industries at Ryerson University in Toronto, where he leads the Creativity Everything Lab. Dr. Gauntlet is an internationally renowned scholar, author, and educator. His research explores creative processes and the cultures that emerge around making and exchanging creative content, both online and off, professional and just for fun. His groundbreaking transdisciplinary work links social analysis of the value of creative engagement with work relating to the media and creative industries. Dr. Gauntlet is the author or editor of 13 books, including Creative Explorations, New Approaches to Identities and Audiences, published by Rutledge in 2007, and Making is Connecting, The Social Power of Creativity from Craft and Knitting to Digital Everything, published by Polity Press in 2011, with a second edition published in 2018. He has also created a number of highly popular digital resources, videos, and playthings, and has worked with a number of the world's leading creative organizations, including a 12-year-plus partnership with Lego. That's right, the building toy company. He's currently working on a new book entitled Creativity, Seven Keys to Unlock Your Creative Self, which, when complete, will lay out his main ideas about creativity and creative activities, their roles, their meanings, and their mechanisms. I'm Sarah Grimes, 
director of the Knowledge Media Design Institute at the University of Toronto, and host of the Critical Technology Podcast. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. David Gauntlet about his ongoing work on creativity, his methods for researching and practicing creativity, and his theory that creativity is a thing that you do. Your lab at Ryerson is called the Creativity Everything Lab. When you say creativity everything, what do you mean by that? Well, we established the lab to be about all kinds of creativity for all kinds of people. And so creativity everything seemed to be a name which suggested that broad, encompassing kind of approach. So um, we're concerned about developing opportunities for people to be creative and thinking about ways in which we can create platforms for creativity, which is any kind of environment, event, toy, tool, technology thing that enables people to step into a world of creativity they wouldn't otherwise have stepped into. And creativity, everything seemed to encompass that and encompass the idea uh, that it's not for a particular bunch of people, that it's quite broad and expansive and we want to be very inclusive in our approach. So just to follow up on that, in this context, does creativity mean making things or is it focused on artistic creativity? What types of activities are you talking about? Yeah, so it is making things, but it's not just artistic kind of creativity. It's, um, as you know, creativity means people doing and making new things in science or technology or coding or anything. Um, so we don't want to develop insights that are of use to ceramicists only or something like that though I don't even know what those would be <laughs> I think the lessons that we learn about creativity tend to be quite broadly applicable but we're certainly interested in all forms of creativity which uh, sometimes people do think you mean artistic things when you talk about creativity but we're not meaning it in that way although we're just as happy with people doing artistic things as everything else you're currently writing a book called Creativity. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the book is about? First of all, the book was going to be called Seven Keys to Creativity, and I had seven different themes for chapters, basically. Um, and then I thought, why not just call it Creativity? So it's Creativity, boom, so it's that. <laughs> and it's all the things I think I've learned about creativity in a book. Um, of course, it has some order to it, and it's not just my thoughts it's but it's drawing together lots of different things from lots of different places it's partly philosophical about the nature of creativity but it's also practical about how people can enhance boost keep going with their creativity um so it's sort of both a handbook and a discussion which i think you know people who are interested in creativity and their own creativity are interested in the discussions about creativity and other creators so it'll it all mixes together hopefully quite well that seems like an incredibly vast topic <laughs> uh yeah uh it does take in lots of things um but i like taking in I, I like things being quite broad rather than too narrow um it takes a different approach to some other writing about creativity in the academic world well then uh the study of creativity tends to be dominated by people in the field of psychology uh, who take a particular, quite often quantitative kind of approach 
writing quite technical things about creativity in, in journals. Um, and I take a more practice-based approach, an approach which is interested in talking to creative people about their experiences, or people who don't necessarily identify as creative, but all kinds of people about creative experiences. And so trying to do it in a way which is more broad and open and sociological kind of in approach rather than the approach of the psychologists. It does include a lot of what I would call psychology. <laughs> um, it, it's about people and how they go about things and how they use their brain to manipulate material to generate new things and insights. So that is psychological stuff. But the approach that I take is not the approach that's taken by academic psychologists. And part of that is the emphasis on practice and not on doing weird experiments, but on just taking people in their lives who may or may not have creative experiences and talking with them about that or leading them through creative experiences and seeing how that goes and talking with them through the experience of doing. So you mentioned that a lot of the academic literature on creativity seems to be coming out of psychology. And I've certainly encountered that in my own research on kids and creativity, particularly frameworks like the creativity quotient and other approaches that try to measure and classify forms of creativity. I've found that there are similar traditions coming out of education studies, uh, actually, some of which approach creativity in similarly purposive or instrumental terms. But from your description just now, it sounds like you're more focused on the experiential and cultural dimensions of creativity. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, you're right about that kind of experiential approach. And it's not so much just a kind of, it's not just academic observation, as it were, like looking at a thing because it's a thing we can study. It's more engaged than that and thinking about how can we help and support people to unlock the creativity that they may wish to have in their lives. And how can we create sort of structures and environments that would support that. Um, yeah, it's good that you mentioned about measurement. I don't believe in that at all. Like the idea of measuring creativity. That, that, that's one of the things that the psychologists I refer to spend a lot of time working out different kinds of measures. Um, but in the book, I was writing a thing about how I just don't think creativity is a thing that people have different levels of. And it's quite common that people think that and people say, you know, I'm not creative, this other person is really creative, I'm not creative, you know, I wish I had their level of creativity. Um, often people have experiences, often I've, it seems to me, around the age of 12, 13, 14, where some authority figure, often a teacher, without necessarily meaning to be harmful, presumably, but they, they say some comment which leads that person to believe that, oh, I'm not creative, and I'll just give up on that. And then there might be 20 or 30 years pass until they then think, hmm, well, maybe I, maybe that person was wrong because they've remembered it all those years. And, and maybe I'll give it a go. Or maybe they never give it a go. Um, but I, I think often it may be a teacher who's just like, oh, well, you know, that, that's nice, but don't do it like that, do it like this. Some little comment where they're not trying to be nasty necessarily. They might think that they're being helpful by suggesting you do it in a different way. But it just knocks people, their people's sense of creativity is quite fragile, I guess. And it, it gets knocked and people think, oh, I haven't got that. But in terms of that thing about whether you do have an amount that you can measure, um, I think it's not an amount of juice that people have. The metaphor about creativity muscles is much better. That's not my metaphor, but there's a metaphor about the idea of muscles. So it's like, we've all got muscles, but if you never go to a gym, then if 
you if you've never been to a gym and then you go along to a gym then you're going to find that it's quite difficult to do all of the gym stuff because you just not exercise those muscles and similarly with creativity if you haven't exercised your creativity muscles then if you're suddenly faced with some creative challenge you're going to find it a struggle but we've all got these muscles and can use them and so when you look at somebody and say oh they're really creative i'm not so creative what what it really means is they they have been creative they've done creative things they've exercised those muscles they've got the experience of trying and maybe failing to do creative things but you could also do that you may not have the experience of trying to do that but you could have the experience of trying to do that it's just a thing that you do so creativity is a thing that you do not a thing that we can measure so a lot of what you've said so far kind of refers to you know this general audience of of everybody can be creative I know from your previous work that you also bring this same argument to academic research and academic contexts. I'm thinking specifically of your book, Creative Explorations, which I use a lot uh, with my students uh, and in my own work. Would you mind talking a little bit about how we can bring some of these lessons into research contexts? Yeah, it's nice to hear that you still use that. There seemed around that time, so that came out in 2007, and there seemed to be a rise in using creative and visual methods then, which I was part of trying to generate conversation around that. The idea that instead of just getting people to verbalise answers to sociological questions, then you could get people doing things and engage their brains in a kind of creative, stimulating activity, which, which had a number of features or advantages. One is just that, in a sense, you give people more time to process and generate responses to the thing that you're interested in, based on the observation that sociologists or humanities researchers often turn up with some questions that they have in their mind because their research is on that topic and so they're going to ask people questions about those things. And you've got this expectation that people are going to have instant answers to those things because in an interview situation the person needs to start talking almost immediately otherwise it's weird so they do and they say things and those are things which their brain can generate around that topic and which are probably you know things that they believe more or less but <laughs> but we certainly found out from from research on this that the kind of first pass of what a person thinks about a thing that they say if you just take that as being their response then fine that's what researchers normally do but if you actually then go through a process over a number of weeks where they're making something and talking about it um well then you get much deeper nuanced kind of responses which kind of suggests that some of the things they said in week one were you know they weren't false or they weren't lying but they weren't they, they weren't closest to what that person really thinks about a thing um and by taking people through a creative process there and and the process of being able to reflect and make something which represents their thoughts and then you can kind of look at it and change it and edit it and realize oh you know i've put this but if i'm going to put that i should also put this and i need to include this thing if i'm going to include that thing and that process of being able to creatively generate a response to a research question um seemed fruitful um that hasn't taken over the world of research in the past decade, has it? But uh, <laughs> people are experimenting more. I suppose it did contribute to a slight growing sense of freedom about methods and maybe a renewed interest in methods because there's, there's a kind of thing, isn't there, where everybody in universities thinks that methods is a boring topic and nobody wants to teach the methods course because it seems, ah, oh, methods, it's just kind of procedure. It's like having to teach people a bunch of procedures which doesn't sound interesting 
And I don't think that sounds interesting either. But if you think about methods as... Like, like methods are the only way that we know anything in social science or the humanities. Like, how do we know stuff? We know it and are able to write about it because we've got some methods that we deploy that generate knowledge. So the methods are the absolute crucial thing at the heart of it all. Um, and without some good methods, you haven't got anything. So that makes it exciting to talk about. And and it means that we should question the methods we've got and try to generate new ones, You know, which is an interesting conversation to have. And it kind of goes to the, the nub of everything. How do we know anything in sociology? How do we know anything in politics or social science or whatever topic? It's, it's the result of the methods that we use. So the methods are interesting and important. I want to ask you about creative practice and the role of practice in your work, in your writing, in how you engage with the theories you explore in your research, but also as this larger praxis in your life and kind of like way of being. What role does doing creative things have in your approach? Hmm. Um, well, I do think that I need to be engaged in creative practice to be somebody who can think about the processes of creativity and you know how it works and all of that it it certainly helps if you've got your own creative practices um and obviously that's things that i like to do anyway but like for example i started making music about five years ago as a in a sense a deliberate thing because i didn't think i'd be very good at it like i didn't have the skills you know, I've, I've liked music all my life like many people in, in the normal kind of way but i didn't know that I would necessarily be that good at making it and I certainly knew that I would have to be starting out in a way where it it would not be good you know and it'd be kind of embarrassing and humiliating and being a sort of middle-aged white man who's like oh I'm going to make electronic music now it's, it's potentially seems naff and embarrassing and I've deliberately thrown myself into that space to face the humiliation of failure as it were and and to try to get better and to be doing something that I'm not necessarily good at. Um, and, and now, annoyingly, I've got better at it. So, <laughs> so it's not as embarrassing as it theoretically ought to be in, in this approach. And that engagement with creative processes, as you say, is is central to it. And I, I don't want to be entirely auto-ethnographic about what I say about creativity. So I obviously retain an, an engagement with other makers and creators and and we create workshops and things where people who maybe don't identify at all as creative people who are doing things. I also do things with people who do very much identify as creators or artists making different kinds of things. And also, as well as those things, myself and my own experience of that certainly helps and feeds into it. And thankfully, the idea of practice-based research, where you as a researcher are doing and making things as a way of understanding a topic, um, means that I can sort of approach it in that way and it's not purely autobiographical or anecdotal which doesn't seem quite right to me but it's it, it is part of a, a more rigorous structure of engaging in creative practice as a way of understanding creative practice which does make sense I think. I also want to ask you about material and digital and the relationship between the two both in terms of their roles in creative practice and creativity and in terms of some of the emphasis that's found in the literature on making and maker culture, on the importance of hands-on, tactile, material engagement. What do you think about the relationship between digital and material and the traditional divisions between these two modes of engagement? 
well, I think of them as a continuum for one thing, and it always works well if you've got uh, the the physical or material and the digital working in some kind of tandem. Of course, we do some things that are purely digital. We do some things that are just in the physical world and we don't do anything digital with them and that's fine. Thinking about ways to bridge those and to create kind of hybrids uh, is interesting. Like in my past, well then one of the things I did was working with Lego on Lego Serious Play, which was a very physical hands-on way of getting people to externalize their thoughts. It's a process where adults build metaphors of their experiences in Lego, which sounds ridiculous when you say it like that, but um, you lead people through a workshoppy process where they get used to using Lego and then thinking about metaphors and representing things in metaphors and then getting to the point where they can basically build models of their internal worlds or their relationships within an organization or within the experience of education or healthcare or something else and, and, and make it very physical and then it's that thing where you've got a physical object in front of you and you look at it, you can talk about it to other people because you've got this thing that gives you kind of prompts for talking and different dimensions to talk about. And you can edit it and change it and, and realize that if you're including this, this and this, then you also need to add on this, this and this. Um, so it's a very interesting way of sort of externalizing knowledge, a person's knowledge and being able to reflect it and review it and, and talk about it. And that's very powerful, and that's purely hands-on, basically. You can do sort of digital versions, but there's definitely something that comes from the the physical connection with the materials. Um, people have a nice kind of nostalgic feeling about Lego anyway, or even people who've not seen Lego before find it quite easy to make something pretty satisfactory. And the thing about how your hands are have the most nerve endings of any part of your body, which means the most connections to your brain. So there is that sense in which your hands are doing the thinking. It sounds kind of semi-mystical or kind of, you think, is that really right? Can that really be science that your hands are doing the thinking when you're putting stuff together? But because your hands are directly connected into your brain, they, it is like your brain doing the work of manipulating material and making things. So so there is meaning to that. So And so for that, in that case in particular, I have a great attachment to the power of physical manipulation of materials but also all of my working career at least I've been very engaged with the digital and I was one of the first kind of people to be very active having my own website with lots of resources on it and all that kind of thing in the sort of mid 90s and and the idea that it is part of an academic's job to be you know putting stuff out there and making it available and to be engaged in all of the vibrant digital culture and and the link between the two is really interesting. If you're somebody that makes physical stuff, well then how do you get it out there and the ways in which you can connect with others and show your process, even if you can't exchange the sort of main thing that you make online in a very direct way, there's still a lot that you can do about communication and process and exchange of ideas and inspiration. All of those things online is obviously very useful for. Listening to your answers just now uh, and thinking about previous conversations that you and I have had it sounds like you're actually still pretty optimistic about the internet and online culture, which I have to say is pretty divergent from many, most of the other academics studying digital culture at the moment. Why are you still optimistic about the internet? <laughs> I'm, to be fair, I am both. I think it's like there's a pile of good things, there's a pile of bad things, and it's worth talking about both of them. 
and the pile of good things doesn't really affect the pile of bad things and, and vice versa. So so obviously there are many arguments that people can make and um, which I am, you know, I'm sympathetic to them but also they're just like factually true <laughs> beyond anything about sympathy. It's, it's just the facts about the surveillance culture, uh, surveillance capitalism, uh, the, the potential for people being abusive and, and bullying online, all of the different dimensions of bad things you can say about the internet are true and worrying. And it's good that there are people that talk about that because that's important. At the same time, the things that were true about the internet in the 1990s remain true. There's certain things that now seem to exist within certain frames that makes life a bit more difficult. But the, the very obvious basic thing about the internet which that it enables you to connect with other people who are interested in the kind of stuff that you're interested in, which previously was often difficult. You just, you know, you were interested in whatever niche of whatever it was that you were interested in, and you were aware that there might be other people in the world interested in that thing. And maybe you could sign up for a newsletter about it or something, or you know, read a magazine. But being able to have proper exchanges with people interested in your kind of thing was difficult it's a very basic obvious thing about the internet the internet enabled you to find those people all around the world um and that's very powerful and it's still true and and the opportunities yeah, you know, just to connect with a creative community to show your work to exchange ideas to be inspired by what other people are doing to problem solve together to find new techniques and ways of doing things um all of that is still great you know it's <laughs> those things are still great and are still just as possible as they ever were and they exist at the same time as uh you know all of the bad stuff and and the two things often come from the same source like you can enthuse a great length about the the value of people forming uh communities on particular platforms which are actually awful platforms uh, or can be used for awful purposes and are doing awful things in the background i mean facebook's the obvious one there um we can enthuse about the value of being able to look up a youtube video about absolutely anything and it's absolutely fantastic and all different people sharing ideas and, and how to do things on youtube that is great and is part of the mega monolith google doing all of the things that google does and i think it's interestingly difficult to to talk about these things and for one thing there's a strong culture in academia that you it, it's good to be critical right which means you talk about the negative things and you get kudos and respect for talking about those things and bringing them to light um which is true <laughs> good and fine and i'm glad that people do bring the negative things to light that's valuable um but it's hard for people to hold both things in the air at once and be able to talk about the good things and the bad things at the same time. Um, and you'd think that the academic world should be quite sophisticated and nuanced. But I think it finds it very hard to not just have an argument which is like, well, these people are right and these people are wrong. <laughs> and this is the good stuff and this is the bad stuff. Um, so it's interesting trying to have a more nuanced conversation about it. Yeah, in a sense, if there were no positives, then what would be the point of even fighting for it, right? That's why it's worth creating the critique and introducing regulation and trying to make things better, because otherwise the solution would just be to turn it off and do something else. And very few academics are actually making that argument, but maybe not enough emphasis is placed on 
the things that we need to reclaim and protect when it comes to digital culture or life online. Yeah, I, I think it is worth talking about the things that make digital culture valuable for people because obviously that is why that's why we use it and engage in it. As you say, it wouldn't be a problem if it wasn't of value because then people just wouldn't want to be using it anyway. <laughs> so you've got good and bad things very much intertwined. I'm going to shift gears a bit and ask you a question I've asked all of my guests on the podcast this season. How has COVID-19 affected the people and processes at the heart of your research? So for starters, how has the pandemic affected creative practitioners? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the COVID situation just really turns up your attention to lots of things. So it turns up the question of like, how can we really use the internet, which is one of the things we can still use to its best advantage. I think it also raises questions about like, why are we even doing this thing? Like when universities have to switch online and do all their stuff online, it also raises this whole question about, well, what is it that we're doing? What are the things that you want to somehow turn into an online experience? Or what is a university for? <laughs> These very fundamental things. And in terms of creative people, um, I think COVID hasn't been all bad. It's shocking to say. Obviously, COVID's a terrible thing. And, uh, and you know, the illness and death and loss and grief and all of that is terrible. I'm just talking about how people have managed to pivot within this time. And I think people have been prompted to do all kinds of interesting new things that they otherwise wouldn't have had to do. And it's been very interesting to see the, the pivoting that some people have done. Um, obviously, it would probably be nicer if we'd never had to do this. But um, for some people, like those people who rely on, especially obviously having people in rooms, like performers, some people have just had to basically stop doing what they were doing but I've been very interested to see for example like stand-up comedians who were used to turning up in rooms doing their thing and and it was very much a live experience and they got a lot of the positive feelings about just doing it from the fact that they were physically standing in front of people in rooms who would laugh at the things that they did that's the whole definition of the job and then they are having to switch to doing different kinds of things some of which are still physical like doing it doing it in car parks and uh, odd seeming ways of having like people in different kinds of pods in physical environments and even a forest or just those kind of things but um but also of course the the pivot to doing things digitally and and different ways of creating some kind of communal experience uh where people can be sort of enjoying themselves together not just making youtube videos i mean Making YouTube videos is, is an interesting challenge for those people too. But but ways of having more engagement than that and using stuff like Twitch or combining Twitch with other technologies and trying to make it some kind of living experience for people. That's been interesting to see. And now can you tell us about the impact on everyday creativity? Because it seems to have had a really positive impact, at least for some, on people's interests and engagement in creative practices, crafting and making uh, and so on. Yeah, of course, there was that huge explosion of, uh, I mean, it was a proper news story that everybody was aware of, wasn't it? Uh, the, the wave of people doing stuff from their balconies, you know, in Italy, people singing from their balconies or doing DJ sets or displaying art in their windows. And it's talking about this phenomenon. And you look at the date and the date of that story is, I think, like March the 14th. And the lockdown in Italy only started on March the 7th. <laughs> so, and so within a, a very short amount of time, people have started to 
engaging creative practices because it helps them to survive and to feel engaged and to feel part of things. And so the thing I love about that is that you might think that people would start to do some creative activity, but you might imagine that would be like after three months of being really bored and, you know, sort of we'd have to adjust to lockdown, work out what we're going to do with our families and what kind of new routines we're going to get into. And then some more time would pass and then people would get more bored. And, you know, three or four months in, then people might start to get out their paints and their, and their DJ stats and all that. But the fact that they were doing it within the very first days of lockdown just shows to me how much people really want to be able to engage in those kind of practices. I also had a great conversation with... Um, there's a, a woman called Dr. Margaret Herridge, who's the head of critical care at uh, Women's College Hospital in Toronto. So she's the head of a team who are dealing every day with, you know, the absolute front line, absolute frontline workers in the battle against COVID. And these people who are obviously exhausted and facing all of this, you know, the, the huge cognitive load of dealing with all of that. And at the same time, those people were still finding it really nice to find moments of creativity in their lives. And the reason she was talking to me is because she wanted me to go to speak in their, sort of they have an annual get together, which was in December. And she wanted me to talk about the power of creativity. And we had this conversation where she wanted me to do that. And and I started off thinking, you know, I, I what, what could I possibly say to the other people that are really dealing with this terrible thing? You can't just have me talking about the pleasure of you know, painting some unicorns and <laughs> making a bit of music or something. It, uh, my, my cheerful approach to the value of creativity doesn't seem like something I could just start talking about to people who are at the absolute epicenter of the COVID crisis. But but she was really insistent. I was trying to get out of it, basically. But she was very insistent and said, no, 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 people really want to talk about this aspect of creativity in their lives, which they've found really, really vital, even though they are spending, you know, 98% of their time dealing with this horrible thing they also want to have a creative outlet because it helps them to feel grounded it gives them a thing they've got control over is that's one of my explanations about it that opportunity to see a process from start to end and know that it's the thing that you've thought of doing and you've done it and you've arrived at a thing and you can share it with others that's all nice i guess when you're at the epicenter of an uncontrollable covid crisis well then that's the opposite although of course they're being extremely inventive uh every day and finding new ways of dealing with things and just new ways to to smash processes together to make them work a bit more effectively and all of that so creativity is obviously involved in that but my kind of nurturing self-care kind of creativity also has a place for them which was heartening to hear even though i felt like i shouldn't even be talking to them a big thanks to professor gauntlet for joining us today please follow the links in the podcast description to find out more about dr gauntlet's work his upcoming book, Creativity, and the other publications mentioned in today's episode, as well as information on where to send your questions or comments. This was the final episode of season one, but we'll be back in the late fall of 2021 for season two, which will feature episodes focused on research relating to the timely and often controversial topic of children, youth, and digital technologies. The Critical Technology Podcast is produced by me, Sarah Grimes, with support from the KMDI. Audio mix, music, and sound design by Turner Wigginton. Theme song by Tycoon Park. Original artwork by J.P. King. Please subscribe to stay up to date on new episodes and posts as they become available. 
and thank you for listening.